Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason Miller, and I serve as an adult Bible class here at FBC. Um, today we'll be reading scriptures in Luke eleven fourteen to 23. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Please join me in prayer. Lord, this morning we just thank you that you are powerful, Lord, and we are part of your kingdom. Lord, I just pray uh, as we gather today, Lord, that your spirit would move, Lord, that our hearts would be open to your word. Lord, as Greg comes and speaks, Lord, that your spirit would just be in him. In your name, amen. Thanks, Jason. Like he said, my name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at FPC. It's good to be with you. I'm grateful uh, for Todd bringing the word last week. I'm grateful for a number of reasons. Number one, it's nice every now and then to take a little break. But Todd, uh, his schedule, uh, I was surprised he wanted to preach. And... Um, because he had middle school camp the week prior. So he had just come back from camp and then was getting ready to go on a mission trip. And um, it didn't bother me, though. <laughs> so good for him. Appreciate Todd preaching. And yeah, I'd be praying uh, that Travis gets his clothes from Juneau, Alaska. That is not near Dallas, where they are. And it's now, D Dallas is going to be warm this week, as it is most places. Uh, in the country, but Dallas will be cooler than Medford uh, this week. Uh, but the other team members are hoping that his, for as hot as it, hot as it is, that, that Travis has a change of clothes. <laughs> what if God showed up? What if God showed up? That's a question Jesus sort of confronts his listeners with in this passage. And and we really need to allow that to confront us as well. But the question is, what if? What if God showed up? What would that mean? What, what should that uh, do? How should our response, uh, what should our response look like you know, if God, in fact, showed up? And there's a, a couple of ways that Jesus frames the answer to this question. And, and all of them are, well, I mean, just frankly, kind of disturbing. And that's the point. If God shows up, it, it sort of ruins everything that we have planned in many ways. So what if God showed up? I'm going to look at just two areas of this. A lot of places we could go, but just two quick areas. And the first thing is what if God showed up, the kingdom, he says, would be upon you. 
And there's a bit of accountability connected to that. If the kingdom of God were here, all of a sudden, all that matters is what the kingdom of God is about. I, I'm reminded years ago when I was young, I can't remember how old I was, because um, back when I was young, and I'm grateful for this crowd, that was not nearly as long ago as many of you. Uh, I know, that's rude. That's, that's terrible. But I mean, we've got a nice... Uh, yeah, but for, yeah, so a while ago, when I was young, you could do stuff younger. You know, nowadays, if it, we don't let our kids out in the front yard. It's, it's too scary, it seems like, right? Now, back when I was a kid, you could run all over the city and no, no harm, no foul. One day, me and a buddy, I can't remember who it is, uh, we went into this development where houses were being built. And so these houses were being framed. So we went into this one house, and really it was just framing. It had just been framed. It did have sheeting on the roof. And, and a a framed house is, is really just a giant jungle gym. And so we were climbing all over this thing, up in the rafters, running around all over the place, and we were having a, a really good time. It, that is until the homeowner showed up. And all of a sudden, this guy walks in, and now all this, you realize I'm on somebody's property. I'm in their house. And I don't really have uh, permission uh, to do it. And he was a little bit irritated that we were climbing around in his, his unfinished house. He quickly told us to climb down, and then uh, he went on to describe what the house was going to look like when it was finished. And my friend and I didn't care. <laughs> but we figured we ought to look interested. Oh, really? Oh, there's going to be a bathroom, a walk-in closet. Wow, that sounds very compelling. Well, how long do we have to feign interest to keep him from calling the police was sort of the issue. <laughs> what happens is... Everything about what was important to us changed when the owner showed up. Once the owner showed up, it was no longer what's fun to do in this house. What really matters is what does this guy care about? And when the, when, if God shows up, that's what happens. Is all of a sudden everything we were worried about is contrasted with his values, and we get, we get a little bit nervous. If God shows up, his kingdom is upon us, and we discover what our rebellion looks like. And rebellion against Jesus shows up in a number of different forms as we're going to see in this passage. It, it, it comes to the form of rejecting him as God in one form. No, you're not God. You're, you're in fact evil. But another form of rebellion against Jesus is uh, to assume he doesn't matter. That's another form of rebellion against Jesus. And we see both in this passage. Rebellion against God says in our hearts, either Jesus is evil or Jesus doesn't matter. And Jesus in this passage is going to show us how high the stakes are in the situation. You can't be neutral on Jesus. You can't say, you can't play the middle ground or just sort of compromise. It's either he is the king or you're in rebellion against him. Let's look at the setting, verses 14, 15, and 16 in Luke 11. He was casting out a demon that was mute. And that's a strange thing to say. Here is somebody that was likely uh, deaf and maybe couldn't speak, or maybe only couldn't speak but could hear. But often this phrase, mute, speaks to somebody who uh, is unable to hear and, and likewise is also unable to speak in a way that can be uh, understood. And here we have, apparently, this person's... Uh, disability was not connected to a physical ailment. Rather, his inability to hear and speak was a direct result of the work of the devil. 
So a demon had somehow uh, brought upon this person the inability to uh, see or hear or, or speak. So Jesus cast out the demon. Now, we should be clear, there were other times Jesus healed people who couldn't hear, and he didn't cast out a demon. He just healed them. In this particular case, Luke wants us to understand this ailment was not merely a physical ailment. This ailment was the result of demonic activity in the life of the individual. Now, I must say, because here in a modern uh, uh, place where there's modern people, meaning you're alive today, some of us are saying, oh, that's just a very quaint way that uh, ancient peoples would understand ailments. It certainly wasn't demonic. It was The guy was sick, and ancient people, in not understanding physiology, would describe things as demonic. Nowadays, we have uh, figured out all the sciencey stuff, and so therefore, we no longer need this very archaic uh, demon stuff. And that would be a lie. The Bible here is presenting the reality of how the world works, and the reality is this. There is a material, seen world, and there's a spiritual, unseen world, and both are interacting with one another. In this case, the unseen spiritual world, the work of this demon, was causing the seen person, the person who could be perceived to not be able to see or hear. Jesus addressed the root problem, the spiritual world, and cast the demon out, and it says, the man spoke. End of verse 14, the people marveled. We have to understand what this word marveled means. It doesn't mean they were positively influenced by Jesus casting out this demon. We would be marveled if somebody could juggle chainsaws. Wow, that's impressive. The same word would be used if we would be marveled when we maybe go on YouTube and watch videos of a tsunami hitting a country. We, on the one hand, are like, whoa, that is incredible. On the other hand, that's terrible. And that's what the word is here. This is a word that's used to say they marveled, as in some of the people in the crowd were going, wow, this is really cool. And others were going, okay, I'm not sure what to do with this. I'm not sure what to do with a guy who can interact with the spiritual realm with, with such authority. And we see this mixed reception in verse 15. Some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. That is the prince of demons, it clarifies. That is the devil. The devil is, and the demons, we must understand, are merely angels that at some point in history rebelled against God, and so therefore are fallen, are in rebellion against God, and will stay that way, and they are, uh, we refer to them as demons, or fallen angels, and the devil is the highest of them, the, the most powerful of them. And, and they are saying, here is Jesus casting out demons, and the only reason he has power to do it is because he is aligned with the chief of the demons, Beelzebub, that is, the devil, or Satan. And that, that, this was the mixed bag of reactions to Jesus casting out the demons. Uh, some were marveled, and certainly they aren't really spoken of clearly in this passage. We would assume there are a few that go, oh, wow, this is great. Look, at this guy can cast out demons. This is exactly what we need. Most of them responded, wow, what, this is pretty incredible, but... This makes me worried. This makes me afraid. I'm not sure what to do with this. And then we have others that are responding with, oh, here's the devil. There's, these are all responses that Jesus is getting from casting out the demon. Here's the final response that some were having in their hearts. Verse 16, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. 
They wanted to test him. Why did they want to test Jesus? Did they want to find out if he was powerful? No. They already know that. He's cast out a demon. They know this guy's powerful. So what did they want to test him for? It says one, one thing they wanted to know is they wanted a sign from heaven. So they, we want to know this guy is from the good team, heaven, and not the bad team. Not heaven. I'm trying to be polite this morning. I'm trying to be more polite than I have been so far. That's what I'm trying to do. And so, so they want to test him. So how would they know? What would he need to do for, the, for them to be uh, convinced that he is from heaven and not from Satan? He would need to do something that they would agree is something God does. What's the problem with that? God doesn't do stuff we agree with. If God did everything we agree with, we're God. God is routinely showing up and doing stuff we don't like. And so what they've done is they've created in their mind, here's what God looks like, here's how God acts. So if Jesus, if you will do some powerful stuff that fits my preconceived notions of what you ought to be like, then you're from heaven. If you won't do stuff like give us free food, like make the Romans go away, like heal my particular issues, maybe give me lots of money, if you won't do that, then you know what? You're probably from the devil. And that's what they're doing. Is they want to test him. Will this God, will this Jesus, meet my expectations of what God is or should be like? And if he doesn't, I don't need him. That's called rebellion. That's rebellion against God because God shows up and says, this is what I'm like. And these folks are going, well, I'll decide what I think you ought to be like. And so they tested him. This is the setting. He casts out this demon. People are amazed, but not necessarily impressed. We have others that are blaming, saying that he does things by the power of Satan. We have others that want him to do more powerful works to make sure he meets their expectations of what God is like. Verse 17, Jesus does a miracle just like they wanted. Others were tested. They wanted a sign from heaven. And look at verse 17. What's the miracle he did? He knowing their thoughts. So here he is. He reads their minds. He knows what they think, and he responds not to what they're saying. He responds to what you're thinking. This is what Jesus does. He's, it's very awkward to have him around, I'm telling you. He knows what you're thinking. He responds. So he gives them a sign. He doesn't respond to what's being said. He responds to what's going on in their heart. That should have been sign enough, shouldn't it? It wasn't. That's because they had an agenda, and it had nothing to do with trying to figure out if he was actually the Messiah. It had everything to do with trying to meet their own agenda. Here's what Jesus said in verses 17 and 18. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So he reads their minds in a miraculous power, responds to their objection that they didn't voice, and he makes a very clear statement. Satan divided against himself is a losing proposition for Satan. Your, your accus their accusation is completely senseless, and it makes uh, no sense. What is Satan's goal for humankind? All he wants to do is murder everyone. That's it. He simply wants to kill all humans. That's the goal. 
he does, what, what they're accusing him of doing makes no sense if that's Satan's goal, is, is to go against himself. In a sense, their argument assumes that Satan is an idiot. That's what his argument is. He says, do you think Satan is that dumb? He has the power and he has the ability by his own agenda to murder everyone if it weren't for the steady hand of God's redemptive work. Why would he go against himself and cast out demons? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Satan divided is a losing proposition for Satan. And since his primary goal is the destruction of everything God has done, their assertion assumes that Satan is an idiot. And Satan is not an idiot. And that's why their assertion is, is so ridiculous. And, and in fact, he, he pushes it even further. If I cast, this is verse 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Here he makes an allusion to the fact that people exercising demons was a, a common thing. People would go, and if somebody was oppressed by a demon, uh, pe- uh, others would go in, they would pray for that person, and they would seek to do what they could to see the demon cast out. You can read through the book of Acts. There's many, many places when many people cast out demons. And Jesus is saying, now, I've done the same thing that people aligned with your religious system have done. So who are you guys doing it by? How are you casting out demons? If not, with the same power, I am casting out demons. Then he says, therefore, those among your people who cast out demons will be your judge. They will judge you and the words you're using. If you say, I'm casting out demons by, or by the power of Satan, so do the people that you know who are doing it. And this is his argument. The accusers uh, throw their associates, the people that they know, under the bus with this accusation. In a sense, what Jesus is saying is, what you're saying is anybody who casts out demons is satanic. What about the people you know who do that? You just threw all those people under the bus. And that's his argument. And here's the final thing he says just to point out what they need to think clearly about. And this is the point we need to think about just for a minute. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he says here, listen, this is no little thing. If I am doing my work by the power of God and the kingdom of God is standing here, would you really want to accuse God of doing his work by the power of the devil? Think about it. Is that something you want to do? A couple of observations on this. Look how he says it. How does he cast out demons in verse 20? The finger of God. So this is a really important image to understand about God and demons. Have you ever had a a mosquito on you? Isn't that the worst What do you do when there's a mosquito on you? Got it. This is overstating the amount of effort it takes for God to cast out demons. What is it? Because I took four fingers. This is God casting out demons. That's it. We have to understand, this isn't some cosmic struggle of good and evil. It's God always getting his way, Satan always losing. That's the biblical framework of What's going on here? And that's what Jesus said. Now, if it is by the finger of God, notice how much effort Jesus put into casting out this demon. Let's see, what does it say in verse 14? He was casting out a demon that was mute. It's almost in passing. Bye. Casting out the demon that is mute. Here you go. Finger of God, go away. Man speaks. 
So if by the finger of God I cast out demons, Jesus said, if I am the Messiah operating by the power of God as God in the flesh, then the kingdom of God has shown up. If you're going to accuse Jesus of not being God, make real sure you're right. That's what he's saying. Make real sure you're right. Because if Jesus is from God, the kingdom is in your presence with all of its power, with all of its holiness, with all of its glory, with all of its authority. His kingdom is here. That's us standing in his house that he's building, and all of a sudden the owner shows up, and now we got to figure out, are we doing stuff the owner wants? Because now in this moment, with the kingdom of God standing in our presence, all that matters is what he thinks. That's all that matters in that moment. And in that moment, if what he thinks is different than what we want, we end up in that re those rebellious responses. Number one, we respond by saying, oh, I know what he wants, but you know what? Honestly, he doesn't really matter. He's more of an inspirational teacher. He just has some really good quotes. I mean, he, it was such a good quote that Abraham Lincoln used it. I mean, that's pretty impressive, right? He's just an inspirational teacher. Or worse yet, we would say maybe what he says. No, what Jesus is saying is evil. And all of these responses are rebellion. The question is, if Jesus shows up and stands in our presence and all of his glory and holiness and authority and power, what does that mean? Do we recognize he is God and realize all that matters in that moment is, that, is what he thinks? His kingdom would be upon us. Now, Jesus made it clear after his resurrection that his kingdom is coming in power. It hasn't come fully yet. It's come certainly in the, uh, the resurrection of the dead and the faith we have in him and the, the experience of redemption. But his kingdom has yet not fully uh, been understood or realized here in this world. But when it comes, the situation of what matters is going to be really, really clear. Right now, we live by faith. We trust that that's the reality because that's what the Bible says. Right now, we miss it. But we have to understand what Jesus is saying here. There's two options. You are either in the kingdom or you are against it. You are either in the kingdom or you are against it. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There is either in the kingdom by the power of faith in the gospel or there is against Jesus. There is no sort of, sort of okay with Jesus, but he's not my deal category. Because that's not how kings work. The owner shows up and says, this is all mine. There is no middle ground on this. Jesus always wins, and when the day of his victory is finally realized one day in the future, all that will matter is those who are in Christ or not in Christ. What if God showed up, his kingdom would be upon us. Let's look at verses 21 through 23, this end of it, this very short parable. What if God showed up? First of all, the kingdom would be upon us, and all of a sudden our lives would need to be evaluated by what he thinks. And secondly, what if God showed up? The enemy would be defeated. He tells this parable, and I want to get to the parable in a minute, but I want to remind you of a story in the Old Testament. It's in Judges chapter 9. You don't have to turn there. I'm not going to read it. But in Judges chapter 9, we read of a guy named Abimelech. Abimelech. Nobody names their kid Abimelech, thankfully. Abimelech was one of the sons of Gideon, or sometimes referred to in Judges as Jeroboam. Gideon had many, many sons, but Abimelech he had with a woman who wasn't his wife, a concubine that he would travel to see. 
And you say, well, that sounds really terrible. Have you read Judges? It's kind of full of that. So Abimelech was a rival to his brothers. After Gideon, or Jeroboam, died, Abimelech became sort of leader, and he ends up murdering all of his brothers, and he becomes a leader. So not a great guy. He set up shop in a town named Shechem. Now, lo and behold, another guy moved to Shechem, a guy named Gal, Gal, son of Ebed. He moved to Shechem, and he decided he wanted to be a leader. And it turns out people like Gal. In fact, one day, they were having a, a little feast, and it says they were eating and drinking. You always say really smart things when you're feasting while eating and drinking lots of wine, right? Don't you find that when you drink a lot of wine, you say really brilliant things? At the time, they seemed brilliant, probably. So Gaul says, who is Abimelech? Who is this Abimelech? Would that the people were under me. I would remove Abimelech. I would even tell Abimelech, hey, increase your army. Come on out. Come on, Abimelech. Get your army going. So he's really spouting off. He's talking a lot of trash, so to speak. A little while further, down in verse 38 of chapter 9, Abimelech's general, Zebul, okay, I didn't make these names up. Zebul is standing with Gaul. Now, Abimelech has heard about Gaul, and he has made his way back to Shechem. And as he's making his way back into Shechem, Zebul and Gaul are standing on the wall, and they see these forces making their way. And here's what Zebul says to Gaul. Where is your mouth now, you who said, who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. So he's saying, I, you may not remember what you said, Gaul, because you, you drank a lot that night. But where's your big mouth now? Sobered up in the morning. There he is. Go get him. Well, Gaul's got to back up his word, and so he does. He goes out, and of course, he gets completely wiped out. Abimelech ends up destroying the entire city. What if God showed up? The enemy would be defeated because in that moment, the question to the devil is going to be, where's your big talk now? The king's here. What are you going to do now? Jesus, we need to understand this. Jesus doesn't lose. He's not going to lose. He has never lost. He is God. Everything he wants is done. Everything he doesn't want is not done. And everything he has ever done, he has done perfectly, and it always is successful. It's important to understand, that being the case, whose side you're on. And as Jesus has already made clear in the first part of our passage, everyone is on a side. There's no middle ground here. There's no Switzerland with Jesus. There's no neutral party. Well, you know, I'm not really into evil, but you know what? Jesus isn't really my style. So I'm sort of neutral on that. And the answer is no, there's no Switzerland. You are either for Christ or you are against him. He's going to say at the end of this passage, there's no middle ground. So the question is, when Jesus shows up, where's your big mouth now? That's what is going to happen for the devil and for all who have positioned themselves opposite Jesus. So let's look at the parable he says, he tells in uh, Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 21. It's not a very long parable. It's very, very short, and I think fairly simple to understand. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Are we good? Okay, strong man, fully armed, he's guarding his palace. Are, is his stuff safe? Yes, until what? Verse 22. 
when one uh, stronger, then uh, he attacks him and overcomes him and takes away his armor, which he trusted, divides the spoil. Strong man guarding house, everything's fine, unless a stronger person shows up. The stronger person then disarms him and takes all his stuff. So who is who? Jesus is saying, look, the devil is a strong man. But what if somebody stronger than the devil shows up? He just beats him. And Jesus, that's what he's saying. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The strong man stuff is safe until the stronger man shows up. And Jesus, using his one little index finger, bloop, strong man gone. That's it. That's how he casts out demons. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. This gives us a little more detail on how this victory is held. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, let me explain just very, very brief, briefly. Uh, before we know Christ, we are dead because of our sin. To rebel against God, all have done it, all have sinned. In rebellion, that separates our relationship with God, so it's, it's ruined, and to be separated relationally from God means we're dead because God is the source of our life. So you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but God makes us alive in Christ. So when we put our faith in Christ, we become alive with Jesus because he has forgiven us all of our trespasses, all of our sins. So when your sin is forgiven, we have righteousness in Christ and right relationship with God, which means we have life. So no longer dead, now alive. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we no longer have a law code that tells us we're sinners. Why? Jesus fulfilled the law, nailed it to the cross. We are made righteous, and now we do good deeds, bearing fruit, just because we love Jesus, not because we have to. What else happens as a result? Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus has victory over the forces of evil, the devil, through his death and resurrection on the cross. How is that possible? What tools does the devil have to kill you? Number one, your sin. He can remind you that you are a sinner. Number two, all sinners die. So what does Jesus do through his cross and resurrection? Takes care of your sin. That's handy. What else does he do because he is raised from the dead? All who put their faith in Jesus are now alive. So the devil now shows up and he says to us, you're a sinner. And what's our response? Actually, actually, actually I'm, I'm righteous in Christ. Thanks though for trying. Good call. And then the devil says, I'm going to kill you. Well, yeah, I mean, but I'm going to raise from the dead. So that's kind of short-lived. You got anything else? Is there, is there anything else you got? That's what he does. And so the, the enemy has been defeated and, and left to open shame. All of the things the devil can do are ruined when we are in Christ. Jesus wins through his sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection. So when a person puts their faith in Jesus, they participate in the victory Jesus had over the devil. That's what we do. 
The victory comes through the good news of the gospel. Jesus saves sinners by faith. All of the tools, all the tricks the devil has to ruin us, Jesus took away at the cross in the open tomb. That's precisely what happened. So Jesus' victory is a victory here in this moment of one of humble sacrifice. One day, this victory will be a victory finally finished in glory. But, but right now, our experience is a spiritual victory over the devil. Look again at verse 23 of Luke, Luke 11. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Since Jesus wins, to win, trying to keep this simple, you must be with Jesus. Since Jesus wins, in order to participate in his victory, you have to be with Jesus. Without Jesus, you've chosen sides with his enemy. Likewise, as we see with the people who respond to Jesus, to merely not choose Jesus is to take sides with the enemy, even if you would say, well, I don't know, I'm not with the devil. I'm just sort of neutral on Jesus, which means you're not participating in his victory. That's what he's saying. You say, well, that seems kind of harsh. That's just the reality of the situation. He's God. He owns the place. I mean, he made it all. He created it all. And when he shows up, he wants things his way. And you say, well, I don't, I don't want things his way. I understand that. You're a sinner. I get it. It's still going to be his way. That's what he's trying to explain. It's going to be his way. If you want to participate in the victory with Christ, then you put your faith in Christ so that you are connected with him, that you have forgiveness, righteousness, life, and victory over the devil. I might say it this way to use a political term. Jesus, in terms of spiritual warfare, is intentionally partisan. Intentionally partisan. There's only victory with Jesus or defeat with the enemy. There is no other option. You either trust Jesus and participate in his victory or you're against him. And you say, well, you've repeated this a few times because you don't get it. You're not hearing me. There's no middle ground. There's not sort of a, I'm into Jesus and where, what would Jesus drink or do bracelet? Is that what the D stands for? What would Jesus do? So I'm, I'm sort of pro-Jesus. It's sort of the pluralistic, I'm also pro lots of other things, but I'm not against him. Then you are. Then you are. It's Jesus as king of the universe, totally in charge, always gets his way, or you're against him. And if, if he acted any other way, wouldn't it be kind of a lame king? A king shows up and says, well, no, you guys do what you want. We don't need you then. Satan is defeated. Jesus' kingdom is going to come in all of its fullness. So what does Satan have to do to us now? If you're in Christ today, if you put your faith in Christ, you have, are, are made righteous. You have the righteousness of Jesus given to you. That means even, this is weird, even if you did something bad today, let me rephrase that to be more accurate. Since you did something bad today, how righteous are you? As righteous as Christ. Isn't that bizarre? The gospel says I don't have to be good to be good. The gospel says I'm good because Jesus was. So since Satan can't accuse me of sin, and, and since I'm in Christ, I, I, I can't die. I mean, my body's going to be die at one point, but, you know, 
I'm just going to be raised from the dead, so what's the big deal? So what can Satan do if sin doesn't stick to us anymore and death has no hold on us? What is the only thing Satan can do? He can lie to you all day long. That's what he does. He can't do a thing to a believer other than convince you everything I just said isn't really true. Because some of you really, really blew it this week. I won't say who. I'm not going to use names. And you are thinking maybe you did that one thing that doesn't make you okay with God. That you actually are the one person who finally figure out the one thing you could do that undoes the good news of the gospel. That's what Satan's trying to convince you. Oh, no, no, God would not be okay with that. He probably is pretty, pretty peeved. He's probably going to smite you. That's, that's what this, all he can do is lie to us. That's all he can do. And, and this is why we have to routinely, on repeat, over and over and over again, remind one another, no, no, he's lying to you. You're okay. You're good. You have, by faith, received the grace of Christ, and you have been made righteous by Christ. And, and gee, I hope you don't do that sin anymore, because it kind of ruins things. But you know what? You're still okay. You're, you're fine. And, and, and all Satan can do is lie to us. He can lie to us and tell us we aren't in Jesus. Jesus wouldn't save someone like me or you. That's one thing he can lie to us. He can lie to us and tell us Jesus is weak. Well, how could Jesus possibly forgive you? And by the way, did he really? I mean, he's not showing up where you need him. I mean, you've been praying about that thing forever. He's not answering, so you think he forgave you? If he would have forgiven you, he certainly would give you this. Ever heard that one before? You're acting like you haven't. Okay. Oh, no, if I'm forgiven, then he would hear this prayer and then he would answer. And since he's not answering, now I'm going to go through a long catalog of things I've done wrong to try and figure out which thing I did wrong is keeping him from hearing my prayer. None of this is biblical. Jesus either gives us what we ask for because he's into it, or he gives us something better. Now, of course, you disagree with him on what's better, but that's fine. And, and Jesus, so Jesus is weak. Or one other lie he gets, uh, gets us with is Jesus is unsatisfying. Well, certainly Jesus is great, makes me feel good to be forgiven, but at the end of the day, I'm a person. I have desires. I have appetites. And there are other ways I find satisfaction other than Jesus. And that's the same lie he told Eve in the garden. You have the entire garden, and you've got relationship with God, and she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye. Well, God's great, but, but you know what? To really be satisfied, I need this. And these are all Satan has left is, is lies. What if God showed up? His kingdom would be upon us. And all of a sudden, it would come into stark reality whether or not our life looked like the kingdom or doesn't look like the kingdom. And if God shows up, the enemy is defeated. I want to look at Ephesians chapter 6 briefly. And by briefly, I mean for an hour. It's a passage you're familiar with, and I'm going to read it and then provide some comment on it, but not lengthy comment. Maybe. We'll see how it goes. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Are you familiar with this? Is this new information? We've heard this before. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, 
Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in uh, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. First thing, according to this passage, who is your enemy? Certainly it's the culture. Certainly. Certainly it's people in our culture who have decided that they think things differently than what God thinks. Right? Certainly the enemy is the culture shifting in ways that makes many very, very uncomfortable and frustrated. Is that the enemy? Okay, didn't, didn't want to get personal. Certainly it's politics. Got quiet on that one. Certainly if we could get a couple of elections under our belt going the right way, we'd fix stuff. Not the enemy. Certainly it's your neighbor. Certainly it's your spouse. Certainly it's your kid. Certainly it's your lame boss. Certainly the enemy is, is all of these things that maybe if we could uh, just raise up enough money or get up enough uh, grassroots efforts, we could finally fix some stuff and make things the way they are. No. Your enemy is not flesh and blood. The enemy of the believer is not of flesh and blood. It is the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is the enemy of the believer. That's it. Your enemy are spiritual forces of evil that Jesus beat, beat down, beat hard, wasn't even close. But these are our enemies to such a degree that Paul devotes an entire a section of Scripture here to us understanding that to engage against our enemy is a spiritual engagement. And he goes through a laundry list of things we should consider when we want to stand against our enemy. The shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the, the sword of the Spirit, the, the belt of truth, feet ready with the with the good news of the gospel. These are ways in which we engage spiritually against our enemy. Isaiah 59, 17. Actually, I'm going to start earlier. Isaiah 59, 14. I don't know. If, yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. Isaiah 59, 14. Isaiah says this. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Everything's going wrong. All the bad guys are winning. All the good guys are losing. Anyone who stops doing evil makes himself a prey to the predator of evil. And then it goes on. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then, I love this. His own arm brought salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. So all, everything's going wrong in the world, and God goes, is no one going to do anything? I got this. His own arm decided to bring 
salvation. So what did he, what did he do? Verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. He wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. So now we look at Ephesians chapter 6, that, that suit of armor. What we, what we should understand we're actually doing is putting on Christ himself. That's what we're doing. We're putting on the salvation of Christ as a helmet and the righteousness of Christ as our breastplate and the truth of Christ as our belt and faith in Christ as our shield and the reality of the word of God as our implement, our sword. So since we have a spiritual battle and since our enemy is a spiritual enemy, the means by which we fight this battle is to, in our day in and day out life, put on Christ. By faith, trusting the gospel. By faith, living righteously as he would have us to live. By faith, trusting what is true. The fight is gospel living. Putting into practice day in and day out in our own heart and lives what it means to live as one who trusts Jesus for forgiveness. There's more to it. Verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 6. Did I make that abundantly muddled? Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance. To, to what end? The praying part. Anybody else in the Bible have trouble uh, staying alert praying? Just Peter, James, and John. You know, when they're with Jesus personally the night before he died. Yeah, so. Pray also for me. So the means by which that we engage the enemy is prayer, and prayer is a de an act of desperation. We put on Christ, and we put on the outfit, and we say, okay, I'm in Christ. The enemy has nothing against me. Wait a minute. I realize I'm a weakling compared to this enemy. Jesus, you need to show up. I need you. It's a, prayer is the, an act of desperation where we call in for reinforcement someone who is more powerful than us. The primary way in which we engage with the enemy is through putting on Christ and seeking him in prayer, that our hearts might be more like Jesus. What if God showed up? The enemy would be defeated. Okay, last thing. Let's look at, uh, go back to, we'll wrap up with this. I'm getting hot up here. It's not even, not even 100 yet. Luke chapter 11, verse 23. I'm hesitant. I, I don't like to be mean. I know you wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but I just, I just want to say, what the, whoever's not with me is against me. That's what Jesus said. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. The way we have to understand that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus showed up. It's historical reality, historical fact. He died on a cross. This is not a, a, a fact that's up for debate. He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. Hundreds of people saw him. The kingdom is upon you. There's only one appropriate response to the king showing up. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Trust Jesus to forgive you. And now live your life for him by faith. The king showed up. The only appropriate response is to repent, trust Jesus, turn aside from our sin, and live our life seeking first his kingdom. Anything otherwise 
isn't there yet. The king is here, and he's, we got to act like he's a king. Not, Jesus did not come and make some really, really important suggestions. He said, trust me through repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and live for me to the glory of God. This world will not last forever. And one day when his kingdom shows up in his fullness, it will just simply be who's with Jesus and everybody else. I know that sounds harsh. That's what he said. So the fix is, don't be the everybody else. That's it. Trust Jesus for forgiveness. Well, I think Jesus is kind of lame. Some of the things I do, I don't think are sin. Right, that's why you're not God. He's serious. When we disobey, when we live our lives in a way that is contrary to God, seeking the passions of our flesh as a way to have its satisfaction in this world, it's rebellion against the king, and we incur judgment, and the only way to avoid it is to trust Jesus to forgive us of that. That's the only way. What if God showed up? The kingdom is upon you. Repent. That's all I got on that. Next one is for those of you who already have. We're not going to go any easier on us. The, we have an enemy, and his job is to destroy you. He can no longer actually kill Christians. Obviously, he can't kill Christians. We're in Christ. All he can do is seek to destroy you through lying to you. The enemies we think that are opposing us, the, the people, the things that really get Christians riled up today, most of which we see on TV, are not the biggest thing you need to worry about. Not even close. It's not even close. The stuff you stay up at night worrying about, the stuff you talk about with your friends at the diner, the stuff that you just are reading about on Facebook, yeah, that stuff matters, and yes, it causes anxiety, not even close to the trouble your actual enemy is going to cause you. The, what, what, that one of the things the devil does is try to convince us the biggest problem is not his work to destroy us. We have a spiritual enemy, and the response to the enemy, the only appropriate response is a spiritual response, which is putting on Christ, seeking Christ in desperation through prayer. That is the way we oppose our enemy. The other thing we can do is tell one another the truth. Like I said, one of the things the enemy does is lie to us and tell us that big nasty sin we did this week is going to condemn us. So maybe what you should do is tell your buddy what you did and see if he has any insight from the gospel. Maybe he'll tell you the truth, not lie to you like the devil. Maybe he'll tell you the truth and say, yeah, that was bad. That, no, that was, I mean, that was bad. And Jesus still loves you, and so do I. Because we need to hear that truth. We have a spiritual enemy, and the battle is a spiritual battle. This means we need to take a hard look at what it looks like to align our life around the purposes of the kingdom. We say, well, I don't know what the purpose is of the kingdom. Luckily, I'm glad you asked. He wrote it down. So this is what's great about the Bible. It's everything about God and his kingdom. And if you're a little bit fuzzy, this is, I'm glad you asked. All you have to do is find out about his kingdom in the Bible. And how do you do that? You don't want to say it, do you? It's just like, no, I don't want to say it. No, you just read the thing. That's all you do. You just read it. You just read it. It's not a big deal. You just pick it up and you read it. 
Anybody ever get bored by the Bible? Oh, you can't say that in church. So what do you do when the Bible is boring? Here, because I'm kind of grumpy today. Here, let me give you a little hint what you do when the Bible is boring. I don't care. Read it anyway. It's life. Hey, you talk to a cancer victim. Well, getting chemo is boring. You got to sit there on the infusion thing for two hours. It's boring. I think I'm going to do something else. What? Would, would anybody say that? Yeah, the Bible's boring. I think I'm going to skip it. I'm sorry, what? The one place where we know exactly what God has to say about him and his kingdom? You're bored with it? I don't think the problem's the Bible. That wasn't on script. I better move on. I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, last two things about the kingdom, and then we'll move along. Number one, make sure you're on the winning side. And you say, well, that sounds kind of stark. I'm sorry, it's... The king wins. Jesus never loses. Make sure you're on the winning side. Well, I don't like Jesus. Then you're not on the winning side. If you don't want Jesus, you don't want to win. Make sure you're on the winning side. Thankfully, he accepts all who trust him. Just a matter of faith. Trust that he forgives sinners like us. Second thing, realize that all of our life one day will stand up next to and be stood up next to the kingdom. And we're going to see them both on that day. On that day, we're going to see all of our life. We're going to realize everything about our life. And then we're going to see everything about the kingdom of God. Will your life look like the kingdom? Or will the, your life look like your kingdom where you tried to cram Jesus into the nooks and crannies? That's what Jesus... If the kingdom shows up, does your look, life look kingdomy? It's really, really important. I don't know how to give you... a what to think about that, but if you're like me, that sends a little bit of sweat down the back of your neck, and that's precisely what Jesus wanted to do, us to do. Get to the place where you say, you know what, Jesus? My life is my kingdom with a little Jesus mixed in. I want to switch that. I want my life to be the kingdom of Jesus with me mixed in. What if God showed up? Guess what? He did. His kingdom is upon us, and his enemy is defeated. God, we thank you for the grace of Christ that in this moment, even in the stark reality that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and all will bow their knee to him, we can also experience and appreciate your love and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like us. God, I pray in this moment, for those who are here this morning that don't know you, that in this moment, your, your Holy Spirit would soften our hearts that we would let go of our rebellion, that we would ungrit our teeth and relax our clenched fists and recognize Jesus died for sinners like us. I pray even now those who are among us this morning who don't have life in Christ would reach out in repentance and faith and experience salvation and participate in the victory Jesus is going to bring. God, I also pray for many of us here this morning when we look at our life and we look at what we know about the kingdom of God, we quickly realize the two don't have a lot in common. God, would you give us that, that severe grace of conviction to the core of our heart that we would be willing to set aside those things that are contrary to your kingdom as an act of worship, as an act of love and devotion, God, would you reinvigorate our desire for your word that we would know precisely what your kingdom is about. God, would you move our hearts to desperation that prayer would be an act 
of seeking your help because we understand how much we need it. Jesus, we can't wait till you return and our prayer would be that it would be sooner rather than later, but until that day comes, God, we pray that we would be a people whose lives reflect the kingdom of God for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with the song?